Kiyota Koto. Welcome to Queenstown Live podcast, where we dive into the stuff we all struggle with but don't talk about. Overwhelm, money, boundaries, and giving ourselves the permission to do work and build businesses that we want. Um, I'm here with Olivia Liv Sisson, um, who was born in Virginia in the US and visited here in 2015 and then moved back in 2018 and now lives in Christchurch. She is a, well, there's, I'm sure there's a longer list than this, food, culture and tourism writer. I want to put that on my business card um, and works for the New Zealand Trade and Enterprise and is a forager and fungi enthusiast and has just launched her book, Fungi of Aotearoa, A Curious Forager's Field Guide, with the most beautiful front cover I think I've seen in a long time um welcome how are you and how are you take that as you will <laughs> well thanks so much for having me on Jane really nice to to be here be chatting this morning um yeah I'm good I'm coming down so to speak from a really big couple of months launching my book um I'm tired but I'm also feeling really excited and really supported and really grateful so I'm kind of resting, trying to chill out a little bit, you know, a bit of everything. Eat some mushrooms, as you do. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they, they enter into your life quite a lot now. Um, so I, I first found you when you did a hilarious, um, I think you were in Queenstown and you saw a can of spades at the side of the road and you were like, foragers, there's a can of spades <laughs> not opened on the side of the road. And I was like, who is this hilarious woman? I really want to meet her. Um, <laughs> Tell us about your journey into foraging. Like, has that been a thing that your did your parents do it? Did your what what happened there? Yeah, great question. I have always really loved being outside. My family loves gardening and growing food together and going on little nature walks. And I think my journey into foraging was kind of gradual. It wasn't something I had really done growing up, but I had always heard about wild ramps that grew in Virginia and morels, which are these really delicious wild mushrooms or wild fungi. Um, so I was always definitely curious about foraging. And then when I moved to Ojotahi Christchurch, I learned about the red zone, which is this big open area, very close to the city. Um, that was unfortunately really badly damaged in the earthquakes. So there's no homes there anymore, but there's lots of open green space with nut trees and heritage, apple trees, pear trees, plums, wild mushrooms. So it's this really bountiful little wild food basket that we have right here in the city. So that's, I just kind of started poking around in there and learning about different edible foods as I went. But then I also, you know, I feel like foraging, it can be quite intimidating. And so with things like the can of spades, what's really all foraging is, is really looking for stuff. And when you actually look for stuff, you find a lot of funny stuff too, like an unopened can of spades on the side of the road in Queenstown. Or um, I'll often see like a random singular potato out and about. Yeah. yeah. Really random phenomenon. Yeah. I love it when you, you know, you you sometimes do some stuff and now once you've seen it, you can't unsee it because I see it everywhere now like you say, a random thing. And you're like, what is the story right there? What yeah. happened to that potato cake that is half eaten and someone decided at 2am, I'm done with you. Goodbye. Yeah. 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 Like one of my friends saw a full pavlova sitting on top of a bush recently. Like, obviously there's a story there. There is a story. There is a story. Now, when I think of my, is it mycelium? Yes. I think of Star Trek because I'm a Trekkie. Um, and obviously, you know, the discussion about how clever 
it is they are why have mushrooms got superpowers like what what is the do you know the the science amazes with your science mind tell us about tell us more about that yeah well mycelium is pretty fascinating and it's for anyone listening who's not super familiar it's the underground vegetative part of of fungi so it is kind of like tree roots but also quite different but it's the yeah underground part of a fungus and it's kind of looks like a spider a spider web so it's white and brat branching and very fine and these networks can be really huge and connect many different individual mushrooms so to speak and it is quite clever because the network moves nutrients around and the network in, inter entangles with tree roots and then the mycelium and the tree roots actually share and barter different resources that they have so it's quite it's very deep science um into how it all works and um yeah it's just a really fascinating concept it is very fascinating and my i wish people could see my eyeballs when <laughs> listening to you talk because i just i think of all these little things underground talking to each other and actually we we're, we're just you know go about on our merry way and don't even think yeah. about it so why why has foraging become so cool again is it apart from obviously rising living costs and the need to slow down um is that the major part of why people have actually gone do you know what there's so much I, I know, you know, when you say it is quite intimidating, it's like, well, it is because sometimes it's the fine line between eating something that's going to kill me and um, yeah. actually finding stuff that I can put in my fridge. Mm. Why, why is, what's that journey for people to reclaim that feeling yeah. of being able to do that again? It's kind of interesting. One thing you just mentioned about the rising cost of living, right? It's on everyone's minds. And I feel like you might appreciate this too, right? I feel like sometimes people have a perception that, all these people are making money on social media, right? But in actuality, it's a really small percentage. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the same for foraging. Like I see lots of news articles and stories about how foraging is growing in popularity because of the cost of living. And I kind of feel like that's maybe a little bit incorrect because there are lots of people who like to do foraging, but I think it's a really small number of people who foraged at a scale large enough to actually reduce their food bill, unfortunately, right? I wish this was different, but it actually does take a lot of time. It's not something you can't really just go out unless you're really experienced and know all of the spots and know exactly what you're looking for and get a feed. It's more like you can get some fun accoutrements for whatever you're making, but probably not anything super substantial. So, But I think this is such an interesting question, right? Why is it getting more popular? I think people really reconnected with nature during COVID and honestly, they had more time. And so there was more time to go outside and be curious and research things and, you know, go for a walk and see a few things and then go home and check out a field guide and then maybe keep learning and keep going on that journey. So I think a reconnection to nature, having a little bit more time, wanting to slow down have been big drivers. And then also, I think people also had more time to consider what they were eating and they had more time to cook. And so just sort of a, reignition of people's interest in food and the environment around us and I think just enjoying like the simple simple pleasures like going for a walk yeah absolutely so is that look is that what led you to write in the book like was it a, is it a simple pleasure that well I'm sure I haven't attempted to write a book and I can t imagine there was a few times that you were like why am I doing this oh yeah but what led you to to like that journey for you yeah, well, I've always really loved writing and 
um, I think for me, it was very, um, just kind of like, I was doing a lot of writing. I was really curious about fungi. I've always enjoyed research. So I ended up doing a lot of research essentially just for fun for about five years on this topic. And I, I just stayed really interested in it. And I started posting online and writing up little stories about what I was seeing and what I was learning on, on social media. And then I started actually working as a writer and realizing that I enjoyed writing a lot and I was actually kind of good at it. And I started writing about food and I did a little tourism writing. I was still doing the social media thing. And really someone else gave me the idea that I could maybe write a book about the topic. And at the time I was like, oh, I actually would really like to do that. And then I lost touch with the idea during COVID and then kind of sprang to my mind again in mid-2021 and I just took it from there. Amazing. Now in that process, because I like to hear about people's process and the actual, you know, unshiny parts of those things that we see online, what did you learn about yourself during that process? What and what came up and how did you get through the, I'm sure, banging your head against the wall parts of that? Yeah, I think oh, this is a great question. I probably need to explore, explore it more like in my own time now that the process piece is behind me. But I think things I learned about myself, probably that letting go is a little bit hard, right? So in a book, yeah. everything you see on the page as the reader was a decision by the author, by the designer, by the photographer, by the publisher. And um, having worked mostly on projects that I was the only contributor to creatively um, was quite different in the book writing experience. And so it was really just learning to trust my collaborators who I knew were absolutely brilliant, but it was a little bit of a learning curve for me to just kind of put myself in their hands. And when my publisher would make recommendations of things to change or things to add, just really trusting her and actually getting to a point where I just immediately always took all of her advice on board. Yeah. Um, that was kind of a tough experience for me. And also just, I think like my perfectionism really was hard to manage. I wanted everything to be absolutely perfect. I wanted everything to be accurate. I wanted every story to be the best it could be. But really, I think in the end, it was coming to the realization that even if I could get everything to 80%, that actually was going to be good enough. Yeah. Um, and so even you know when the book, when I first got my hands on the physical copy of the book, I was so nervous to look look at it because it was just everything and it was so emotionally charged for me, even right down to um, just like, I remember writing the acknowledgements at the end, just being like so worried I would forget someone or, you know, spell someone's name wrong. And I was like, I'm so worried to look through these pages. And so I just kind of let it sit on my desk for a couple of weeks. And then I actually got into it and I was like, okay, now that I've had some time away from this, it's actually pretty awesome. Yeah, because the draw towards opening it up and seeing everything that's not right about it, rather than opening it up and actually coming from it from a place of, oh my God, I'm so proud of what I've produced. You know, instead of being like, where's the spelling mistakes? Where's the thing? Oh God, I missed that thing. Or, and actually not coming from it from that first is yes. really hard for us to do. Yeah, totally. I think my publisher had a great, his was just absolutely amazing to work with at every turn, as was Paula, the photographer I worked with too. I was so lucky to have absolutely amazing collaborators, all Wahine on this project as well, for the most part, which was pretty special. Um, but Rachel, my publisher, said to me 
early on as I totally missed it in the first draft. I, the first draft was a nightmare. And um, once I actually started getting to the good stuff in the second draft, and once we started getting deep into the editorial, getting to points where we couldn't really change stuff, I was getting really upset, feeling like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. This is missing. This wasn't included. Um, Rachel just kind of kept coaching me, reminding me that even years later, there would still be things coming up that I would be like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Yep. And just kind of learning to let go of those things, put them in a yes. list, save them for a rainy day, but otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's inevitable. There's always going to be something we don't do. And yeah. Perfectionism is an, like you say, you got the, the whole 80% thing is great because it's like nothing is perfect. And if it was, it'd be boring. It'd be really boring. Yeah. And, you know, I like to see a little bit of rough roughness in like a, you know, you know, you're reading an amazing novel and you, and then there's like a spelling mistake and you're like, ha ha, they are real. They are or in a movie. I love it. Got like an Easter egg in a movie or something. Yeah, totally. I love it. Um, and so have you celebrated properly that book yet? Have you stopped and celebrated? Yeah, I actually have been celebrating a lot. It's kind of been the theme for my year or the middle part, part of this year, which has been really special. I think in the last year, I've realized a lot how powerful celebration is for me and how having so much fun is kind of like medicine for me. And I had a really fun opportunity to go home to the US for three weeks right after the book came out, which was so freaking stressful, <laughs> but yep. it was a great opportunity to see my family and celebrate my sister who was graduating from uni. Um, I got to hand deliver their hard copies of the book to them and just wow. like really bring that launch experience home to the U.S. as well. I had a really fun launch party at a, at a bookshop here in Christchurch with friends, family, people I know from online. And that was really special. I had a big dinner. So I just continued to kind of relaunch it in different Absolutely. circles. At a point, I'm like, is this getting ridiculous? But, no, uh, you have written a book, a goddamn <laughs> book. You can celebrate for the rest of your life. There you go. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I'll write you a handwritten note that tells you you can do that whenever you Thank want. Thank you. Uh, I love it. No, it is. It's something to be really, really proud of. Um, and Thanks. it's amazing. It's totally beautiful. I love it. I stood in the bookshop the other day. I'm going to get one. But I was like, and this woman was like, ooh, mushrooms. I've never thought of looking at a book about mushrooms. And I was like, yes, have one. <laughs> Take it. Buy it. I love, love it. it. So part of your, I've just been looking online about some of the things that you write about. And I think it's yes. really important for us, me, these podcast episodes to provide people with some kind of information and advice around um, how to, one, I think the whole sustainable eating conversation is really important to have, but it's also filled with guilt for people. Oh my goodness, can I, do I have to stop doing blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So have you got any advice for listeners who, how to feel, I, I suppose like not less guilty, but just to consider how to make buying food more, less stressful yeah. and what, where's the best place to start with that stuff? Yeah, this is a great question. I guess just a little context here. I'm not an expert in this space, but I am a really curious eater. I'm really curious about our food system here in Aotearoa. Um, I've been kind of researching that alongside my fungi interests for a while now and have had a really cool opportunity to be part of Eat New Zealand, which is a nonprofit that aims to connect our food system and make it more resilient and sustainable. So I think kind of 
TLDR of all that I've learned on this topic for the last couple of years. I think it's such a stressful issue, right? The cost of living is so high here. Fresh fruit and veg is astronomically expensive. I think like at the core of everything I've learned, I think the best thing you can do is buy direct from a grower. And I think two years ago, I think there was a question of, oh, that's like a bit more expensive. But now we have really good data that that is actually cost advantage to buy direct from a grower. So to go to your farmer's market or get a produce box um, in terms of sustainability, big wins there too, oftentimes, because it's often more local. Um, also, the grower will get a better margin on that product than produce that you might buy at the supermarket. Yeah. Um, so also, like if it's coming from a smaller scale grower, there's a good chance that it's even more nutrient dense. So on even on every level, there are benefits. And yeah, I think that's me trying to summarize a lot of thinking I've been doing on this topic. Yeah. And it's a massive question. And I suppose like, because, you know, the whole concept, do we have to buy organic? Like it's that, you know, you, ah, ah. is there, is there a, a massive push or point to doing that? Yeah, I think there's great health benefits to buying organic and also it's much better for, for the earth as well. Yep. Not again, not a deep, deep expert on this topic, but yep. Yep. again, again, right now, even if you're buying direct from an organic grower, there's a good chance you're going to be paying the same that you do for conventional produce at the supermarket or even less. So yeah, definitely worth looking into and to have an organic farm is definitely a dream of mine. Yes. Oh, I'm sure I can see you now. With your little mushroom hat on, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you, you know, wandering around with your broccoli earrings. <laughs> I love those earrings. I love it. I totally love it. I was having a couple. This is, I mean, this is a a ten thousand hour episode if we've dug into this. But I was talking to somebody yesterday about you know the fact that we export so much food and how expensive food is here. It I, it blows my mind um, as to why you know cheese is fifteen dollars a block. Like I, I just it, yeah whole other conversation I'm sure but um but that's it's great for and um eggs do you know much about the egg situation like where did they go yeah yeah so I I went back to the U.S. for a couple of months last year and when I came back in November last year the first thing I noticed that there were was that there were no eggs and when there were eggs they were really expensive and so I also got really interested in this topic and started doing a deep dive on that. And again, kind of TLDR of a very complex situation, but essentially some legislation went into play that basically made battery cages um, no longer legal. So all of a sudden a bunch of egg farmers had to completely change their farm setup, which is of course really expensive. Um, And then the legislation actually changed again. And so farmers who had changed their setup had done so at a loss and their new setups oh, were right. survival. So all of a sudden, the number of farms that could actually legally produce eggs dropped right down. And on top of that, the supermarkets made a change saying they would only sell cage-free eggs from a certain date. So all of us just like massive quantum shift for the industry and how a perfect eggs are- storm of no eggs. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's just a good example of um, different parts of our food system really not being aligned and food yep. security not being top priority from from the government and how that shows up for the consumer. Yeah, and it was a really actually a really good reminder of these things aren't like endless. You know, I I go to the supermarket and I want my 
um, you know, Brazilian coffee from wherever and I just expect it to be there on the shelf. And actually, sometimes we need a real good nudge to remind ourselves that things are not, they're not just really available all the time. Yeah, and we're even seeing that. We're even seeing that this week with the continuing rain in Gisborne. Yep. Like supermarkets are short on lettuces, on oranges, and it's just, you know, really tough for that region. And a reminder to all the other regions around the country that if we're relying so heavily on really small pockets to produce so much of our food, it's a big vulnerability. And Absolutely. lots of little producers are actually much more resilient and probably in the long run better off for all of us yeah 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 and science is real baby right <laughs> science is telling us telling us yeah. some stuff it's like yeah. shouting in our ears and we're not listening um mm-hmm. oh i love it okay are you ready for your quick fire round yes um i feel most attractive when oh probably when i've had a good sleep nice um i felt lonely when when I was writing this book. Oh, you need like a little, you need, if you do want another one, which I'm sure you will, um, no pressure. Um, need to set yourself up a little WhatsApp group <laughs> that can give you Yeah, totally. That was a big learning for me. It was like, sometimes creative work can be really solo and really independent. Yeah. How do you get a team yeah. around you? And I learned along the way. It, it got totally. better, but it was challenging. Yeah, totally. Um, I wish I had a second chance at. Ooh. Probably university just because it was so fun. Yeah, I also had a great time. Uh, what brings you joy? Um, gardening. Uh, music guilty pleasure? Drum and bass for sure. Yes, I am an old school drum and bass fan and I can't find many people here. They're all like, what? I'm like, oh, <laughs> get it. It was late 90s. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, manicure, pedicure, facial. Probably Manny Petty together. The ultimate. Oh, nice. Controversial. Hot bath or hot shower? Hot bath. So luxurious. Um, have you got one album you would take to a desert island? One musical album? Oh, um, my music tastes just change around so much, but probably a Dixie Chicks album with the music of my childhood. Nice. Um, and then a book that you usually recommend, apart from yours, people. Oh, yeah. I think the book I recommend the most, mostly to my to my female friends, is The Color Purple. Oh, so good. I read that a long time ago. Such a treasure. Pick it up and do it again. Um, Liv, thank you so much. This has been such a delight. Um, and everyone, go and buy her book. New Zealand, no, uh, that's the wrong line that I'm reading. Fungi of Aotearoa, A Curious Forager's Field Guide by... Have, have you put Olivia on the front cover? Or yeah, this was kind of a decision. I was like, oh, so I put Liv Sis in. This is kind of how I introduce myself now. It's, you know, it's casual, it's friendly. And um, yeah, it's kind of my writing name now. It's like your alter ego. The way yeah. You like, you like your superpower, like Mushroom Woman. You like yes. your Olivia when you're doing that. I love it. Go buy the book and thank you so much. Thanks for having me.